Welcome to the Exam Study Expert Podcast, helping you ace your exams at school and university through the psychology of high performance and the science of studying smarter, not harder. It's my pleasure to introduce your host, the Cambridge-trained memory psychologist and exam success coach, William Wadsworth. Hello and welcome back to the Big Summer Rewind on the Exam Study Experts podcast. We're in the middle of a short break from regular new episodes, ahead of a new season of fresh content for you from September. But to keep you inspired and entertained in the meantime, I've been curating some of my favourite episodes from the very early days of the podcast to rebroadcast for you. I really loved talking to Dr Adam Putnam uh, about mnemonics and productivity way back in episode 11. He was in so many ways the perfect exam study expert for this show, a highly knowledgeable academic who deeply understands the psychology of memory uh, and also has a real interest in getting things done. Uh, but he's also fantastic about translating the science into highly actionable advice for students that we can actually go away and do something with. I really enjoyed rediscovering this conversation. I hope you will too. We're going to start off by talking about mnemonic strategies and which are more or less helpful for us as students before going on to talk about Adam's experience in productivity and how to get your stuff done. Let's meet Adam and get right in. Adam, a very warm welcome to the Exam Study Expert podcast. Thanks. It's uh, exciting to be here. It's it's such a pleasure to have you on. Perhaps uh, we could start by just giving a very brief introduction to yourself and the work you do, particularly in education and uh, and memory. Yeah, sure. So I am an assistant professor of psychology, and so uh, my main area of research is uh, cognitive psychology and specific studying memory. And the thing that's been the most interesting to me over the past 10 years of being research is how we can take what we know about how memory works and then apply it to the classroom in various ways. And so that might mean helping students to study more effectively, helping teachers figure out things that they can do in their classroom to sort of help students learn quickly and make learning easier in some ways and basically try and improve this, this learning process. As a college instructor, it's something I use in my own classes all the time. Uh, and for students, I think like, that's the main reason you're going to college is to learn how to learn. So I think it's really important for students to be thinking about that. Yeah. I'm just curious, actually, but when you when you see new students coming to you, you know what what sort of stage are they at with their with their sort of learning journey? Do people come to you with a whole range of uh, levels of of knowledge and understanding of this stuff? Yeah, uh, I would. Uh, my first temptation is to say yes, but I actually think most students don't have a really good understanding of how they actually learn or how to study effectively, and so I can see that in my introductory psychology class, which I teach in the fall, and it's mostly freshmen. And so this is their first time in college. And I'll be honest, a lot of them don't do so hot on the first exams in college. There's a lot of reasons for why that is. Uh, there's a big transition. College courses are often a lot more difficult than high school classes. Uh, but I think the biggest reason, it's the first time they've really had to study independently on their own uh, to do well in the class. And if you talk to high schoolers, a lot of times, uh, at least in America, on Thursday, the teacher says, here's what's going to be in the exam. And then on Friday, they take the exam. And so it's pretty straightforward. Whereas in college, you know, sometimes you're in these classes where there's a midterm in the final and the teacher says anything that's in the book is, is, is on the test. And so you have to figure out how to do that. 
And so I think most students don't really have a clear sense of of how to study effectively, nor do they realize that there are more and less effective ways to study. I think they tend to uh, find habits that they think work for them and just continue to do that without a whole lot of reflection. And I think that's normal because I don't think uh, as as younger students, instructors and other uh, adults do a good job of explaining how people learn. For sure. And that's 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 all one of the reasons this podcast exists. And I was gonna say that applies to everybody except for the people who listen to your podcast then. Well we, we do we'll do our best, Adam. Yeah. Um there's a couple a couple of big things we wanted to, to talk about. Um yeah. I guess both of those are big pillars about when you're sort of saying students, you know, arriving as freshmen, having a hard time kind of figuring out what you know, what the best ways to study are. Yeah. A big component of that is the actual mechanics of of studying and learning and what they're actually doing when they're sitting at their desk and trying yeah. to memorize and learn stuff. Um, so we'll talk about that. And then also there's perhaps a separate issue around how they manage their time and organize mm-hmm. themselves. Yeah. Um, so it'd be great to kind of come on to that at the end as well. Um, and actually, but before I dive in, I just want to reiterate, because I, I know you've covered this before, but when students come and ask me, what should I be doing to study better? I say, space out your stuttering and take practice tests and various ways to do retrieval practice. And those two, I think, really universally like the, the, the best ways. And I know you've covered that in detail in the past, so I don't want to spend too much time on it. But I just, I would feel bad if I didn't sort of point that out ahead of time. I'm very glad you said that. That was a very helpful reminder. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Um I know you've done some work on mnemonics in particular. It's not something we've talked about on the podcast at all before. So I guess starting from the absolute beginning, you know, what what, what do we mean by mnemonics? What what are they? Mnemonic techniques are really any tool that aid, helps aid your memory in some way. And so some examples of mnemonics that people are probably familiar with are if you're learning to play music and you've got the little phrase, every good boy does fine to remember the notes on the treble clef. When I was in school, we learned the the planets by saying, my my very educated mother just served us nine pizzas. And then it turns out that Pluto is no longer a planet. And so it's turned into nachos instead of nine pizzas. Um, and so those are some basic mnemonics that I imagine most students are familiar with. Uh, but there are also more formal mnemonic systems, uh, such as the method of loci. Uh, and so uh, I think the connection that students might be familiar with is if they've seen the Sherlock BBC show in the past few years, uh, Sherlock uses what he calls his mind palace to store large amounts of information. And that is based on the real technique uh, of using spatial locations to store information. It's not quite as exciting as it is in the show, uh, but you can use it to remember vast amounts of information uh, pretty quickly. So, I mean, all this sounds pretty cool in practice. Um, Does it kind of work if we're trying to prepare for exams? Okay, so that's a great question. And you can go to the, I would say to the bookstore, more likely Amazon, and look for books on mnemonics. And you'll read, there's tons of books, and they'll all say this can revolutionize education, and they, you know, this is going to you know, make memorizing stuff way easier. And that's true in some situations, but not in other situations. And there's also, it's not a, it's not a, a magic bullet. Like, there, there certainly is a cost to using them. One important thing, I think, to distinguish is between single-use mnemonics and multiple-use mnemonics. And so single-use mnemonic is something like the acronyms we used earlier or having a little rhyming phrase to remember a specific set of information. And that's something that you use once to remember a particular set of information. On the other hand, there's things like the method of loci and memory palaces and the phonetic system, which helps you turn numbers into words and vice versa. And those are more formal systems, and those require a lot of practice until you can use them effectively. And so 
at a very basic level, if you really want to memorize something, mnemonics can certainly help. The best evidence of that is there's these guys and, and girls around the world who compete in memory competitions. And they basically will sit down, take a shuffled deck of cards and memorize the order of those cards in like 20 seconds. Or they can remember 350 faces and names in about five minutes. Wow. Right? So they can remember vast amounts of information really quickly. Uh, and so it's really tempting to see that and say, oh my gosh, like why aren't I doing this in my classes? And then you realize that those guys are practicing three to four hours a day on using these specific memorization techniques. And I guess they only work for that specific thing they've trained in. Exactly. And that's one of the things we've seen in the in the research on mnemonics is that uh, they tend to be really effective with certain types of information. And then other types, they still work, but aren't as effective. And then that kind of, it's sort of a continuum. A lot of them are based on visual imagery. And so a really simple system, and I, and I actually jotted this down because I thought, oh, this might be fun. So here's uh, a really sim simple system that I use. And this is when I'm out on a jog. I'm like, oh, I have to do uh, a few things. I don't have anything to write it down with. This is what I'll use. And so it's this little rhyme that you have to memorize ahead of time. Uh, and it's one is a gun, two is a shoe, three is a flea, four is a door, five is a hive, six is a stick, seven goes to heaven, eight is a weight, like, uh, like a dumbbell, nine is red wine, and 10 is a pen. And so this is a little rhyming mnemonic. And then if there's something that I need to memorize, uh, like let's say, oh, I need to get apples at the grocery store. Uh, I think one is a gun. And then I imagine that there's a giant apple and it's being loaded into a gun and it shoots out and it's this giant apple that comes flying out of this gun that kind of hits a wall and explodes, right? Now, William, that's a very vivid image. I imagine you're going to remember sure, for a while. Sure. Uh, and so that uh, is sort of the, the the core technique for a lot of these is you're using this visual imagery. Uh, and so if the next one to is a shoe, let's say I need to think I get to, need to get milk at the store. Uh, and I imagine I'm going to put my shoe on, but instead of putting my shoe on, I put a gallon of milk on my foot, right? And you can feel that it's cold and it smells funny and it's really unpleasant. Uh, again, really vivid imagery. Yeah, yeah. And so you can go on like that. And then later I'm at the store, I can just go back to the run. One is a gun and immediately the picture of the apple pops up. And I need to get apples. I go to the shoe and the milk is there. That's cool. Um, yeah. And so that technique works really great, right? Learning that initial peg list is what that's called. The 10 rhymes takes three minutes to learn that. It's pretty easy. Uh, the images happen almost immediately. But that's you're memorizing concrete objects. Yeah. And when you're in school, it's very rare that you need to remember uh, an ordered list of concrete objects. Usually what you're trying to do is remember bigger picture ideas or a theory or something like that, or trying to deal with something more complex. And so what that means is you have to sort of take ideas and turn them and you know, represent them with something more concrete. And that can be tricky sometimes. And then basically the evidence suggests that uh, the method loci and the PEG systems are really effective when you're remembering concrete information, but the more abstract it gets, the less effective they are. Okay, so if you were a, a student preparing for, you know, tests, exams, midterms, whatever, uh, over the next few weeks, and you mentioned retrieval practice and, and spaced learning earlier, how would you kind of integrate all these, these different techniques? So what might your, your sort of study systems actually look like? Sure. And would you be using mnemonics at all in, in the monks yep. of it? And, and what techniques would you be using? Absolutely. Yeah, so... I can, I can speak to this because I did use mnemonics when I was in college because I was starting to learn about this. And I think the, the thing to remember that mnemonics are good for are when you have to be very precise about what you're remembering. So if you have to know 
exactly what this thing is. Uh, and so that might be a number that's really important or having the exact wording or phrasing for something. Like, I think that can be really helpful. Yeah. Um, and so how I often uh, use mnemonics and how I've seen people who use them effectively in the school situation is they basically do their normal study routine. So hopefully, you know, ideally this is starting early, identifying the things that they know well and that they don't know well, getting help from a TA or a professor, um, using flashcards. And then a few days before the exam, that's the time to start thinking about using a mnemonic technique. And so for me, it was really helpful when, as a psychology major in college, I did learn uh, Erickson's uh, stages of development, right? And so this is kind of an ordered list and it comes in an order. Or maybe it's Freud's stages of development. I know uh, chemistry and biology students will often have to memorize, you know, these different molecules yeah. or these different structures. And that's a situation where a mnemonic can be really helpful. Basically, once you sort of understand conceptually what's happening, you can use the mnemonic as effectively a, a code to retrieval or a sort of a, a, a retrieval aid. After you've sort of figured out, yeah, I need to remember this one chunk of information, coming up with a mnemonic, whether that's a first letter mnemonic or using the method of loci, which is you know, using visual imagery and, and spatial locations, uh, all those things can be helpful to sort of help you actually retrieve that information on the test. Mm. And I think there's a couple of things that are, that are going on that I think are helpful. One is actually sitting down and having to think about how am I going to structure this information, the ways so that I can apply it or use it with a mnemonic, is, requires you to organize the information. And that's actually what you should, kind of thing you should be doing to be studying anyways. Then I think there's also some degree of a confidence boost for students coming into the test because you know you've got this mental cheat sheet. Uh, and I, so I've certainly seen a student in my class who the minute the test starts, they flip it over on the back and they just start writing. Sure. And I realized what they're doing is they're just kind of dumping out like this is the, the whole little mnemonic kind of cheat sheet they've had. And they've got a, cheat, a, a legal cheat sheet for the rest of the exam. I guess that potentially reduces your test anxiety a bit. Exactly. Yeah. So if you know you've got this special system and then... Uh, what that does is later on the exam, you can just be working on it and you say, oh, I'm kind of stuck. Oh, wait, I can flip over the back and I've got this aid right there. Uh, so I think that can be helpful in some ways. Uh, the research on this is really interesting. It's it's a huge field. Uh, and so and each mnemonic is a little different, which makes it tricky to draw any yeah, sort yeah. of general conclusions about it. Uh, for example, the research on the first letter mnemonic, which is where you take the first letter of a bunch of things and then sort of combine them together into a word or another sentence, the evidence is really mixed. Like there's some research that suggests it helps. There's other research that suggests it doesn't help. There's some research that suggests it isn't really having much of an effect at all. That's the sort of thing where I don't encourage my students a ton to do that, but you know, it can help in some situations, you know, if you have just a few things that you want to remember uh, and you understand conceptually what's happening. Uh, and I think the biggest, I'm not sure if it's a weakness, but the thing that hasn't really been clearly established from the research yet is whether these mnemonics help long-term retention. Okay. And so, uh, so there's a lot of evidence that suggests they can be really good if you're taking a test in five minutes or 10 minutes or 20 minutes, but whether that helps you remember information for your final exam that's in a few months or for the class that's you're taking next semester uh, is unclear and so the research just hasn't been done on that yet yeah yeah maybe you just need that that spaced retrieval practice using the mnemonic yep. in order to you know you, it's not just a magic bullet that's going to lock the answer away for the next three months exactly exactly yeah and you do need to practice it and there's and that's it's a sort of thing where 
if it is something you really have to know, like if I said, William, uh, I'm going to give you $2,000 if you can remember this chunk of information in six months from now and you can't write it down, like you could do it, right? Yeah, if you're really motivated, yeah. you would you would practice it every morning when you're in the shower, uh, even you're you're taking a walk uh, and, and you, you could do it just fine. That's it. Yeah, yeah. You mentioned the the evidence for different sorts of mnemonics was a bit yeah. was, was a bit mixed. Is are there any yeah. mnemonics where the evidence is better than others that they're more effective? Yeah, um, it's hard to. So I think it's hard. Uh, it's it's hard. There's a lot of factors that go into evaluating whether the mnemonic works or not. For example, there's this this whole system called the major system or the phonetic system, and basically. It's a way to memorize numbers. Uh, if you're really good at this, you can look at a string of 10 or 15 numbers for 30 seconds and remember it indefinitely. Uh, and it's amazing, but it takes a lot of practice because basically what you're doing is for each number, you're converting it into either an image or a letter sound and then creating a sentence out of that. The answer is that it can be a really effective, powerful learning tool, but you have to be willing to practice pretty intensively yeah, yeah. To, do, to get there. And so the question of whether is this actually worth doing or not, it depends on a lot of things. And it's the sort of thing where I, I tell students who are interested in this, like, if this is the sort of thing that appeals to you, if the idea of saying, yeah, I'm practicing memorizing numbers sounds fun to you, and there are students who would say yes to that, then sure, knock yourself out. Go, go, go learn the major system. You'll find it really useful. Uh, but I think for the, a general high school or college student who has a lot on their plate already, they're not going to want to sit down and learn this complicated mnemonic system just to memorize a few things uh, for an exam. Uh, and I think they'd be better served uh, doing some other things you've talked about on your podcast and your website, like using your flashcards, you know, doing retrieval practice, trying to explain things to other people. Yeah. Is that tra- there's that trade-off between the time invested in making the mnemonic work for you and actually is it worth that time and- exactly exactly and that's a and that's a hard uh, question to answer and you know i personally i i know the system and so i use it every once in a while like if i have a new pin co- code for my atm you know or something that i need to remember like i'll, I'll memorize that every once in a while but i definitely don't practice it i don't use it a ton but i find it handy every once in a while yeah I imagine that most of the people listening to your podcast are probably pretty motivated students uh, if they listen to a podcast on on study strategies, and so uh, they might find it worth uh, exploring to do that. There are, uh, uh, like I said, the the first layer of mnemonics, kind of single use ones. The evidence is really mixed. The method of loci and peg system, which the example with the number is a, is a peg system, those can be really effective and can help you memorize a large amount of information fairly quickly. But again, there's not a ton of evidence looking at how well they work over the super long term and their effectiveness tends to get worse as you work with more and more complex material and part of that is because the method of loci which or the peg system is basically helping you by creating an order of information which to retrieve it and when you're working with real academic material there already is a structure to most of it in the sense that you know we're talking about psychology. And so here's the history of moving from behaviorism to the cognitive revolution to neuroscience revolution. You're not gaining anything by spending a lot of time putting it into a structured order with the method of loci. Yeah, yeah. And, and so just as a reminder, I guess the, the method of loci is that the mind palace oh, one where you're putting things sure. in locations and the yeah. peg was the one is one is gun, you know, the apple on your shopping list. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. So you remembered it already. Yeah. So it's working for you. Yeah. Fantastic. Okay, well, that's that's cool. 
any sort of concluding thoughts that that you think worth mentioning that we haven't touched on already? Uh, it's, it's I think it, again I think it's the sort of thing where if it's something that appeals to you and something that you think would be kind of fun to learn how to do that, it's it's a great place. Uh, it's it's it could, it, it's not going to hurt. It's certainly not going to hurt. I don't think I don't think it's a magic wand, uh, but it could be useful for some students. Uh, I'm looking at my bookshelf right now, and there's a lot of books on mnemonics. One that I really like is called Your Memory by Kenneth Higby. Okay. And uh, he is a psychologist who studied mnemonic techniques. And so I really like that book because he not only teaches you how to use the different techniques, but he also talks about the science and the research underlying it, too, and the general principles of memory that are, are helping it to work. Good recommendation. I'll, uh, I'll have to yeah. check that one out. Um, sure. And just just before we move on from from the, the sort of idea of memorization com- completely, I, I know we've mentioned the word sort of retrieval practice a couple of times. I know yeah. we talked about it on the podcast before, but I yeah. thought it'd be just because it's so important. It's probably worth just taking thirty seconds to remind people, I guess, what it is and perhaps your take yeah. on on how it works and why it's so important. Yeah, sure. So uh, at its simplest, retrieval practice is basically um, practicing pulling information out of your mind uh, and putting it into the world in some way. And so we do this when we take tests. We are retrieving information from the past. We do when we take a quiz. Uh, Even if you're just talking to someone, you say, oh, yeah, I saw this really interesting movie the other day, and you talk about that movie. And the crazy thing that we know from a ton of research is that just the act of retrieving that memory is actually going to make it to easier to retrieve that idea in the future. A few th- few points I think are really helpful for students. One is you want to think about what format is the test going to be like, and you want your retrieval practice to look similar to the format of the test. What I mean by that is if you know you're taking an essay test, we're going to have to synthesize a bunch of different ideas and have a very sort of broad focus. You should be doing that in your practice. On the other hand, if your professor gives you multiple choice tests and very precise definitions, you should be practicing learning those precise definitions on your own when you're studying. And retrieval practice is great because not only does it directly improve what you're knowing, it also gives you really clear feedback about what you know and what you don't know. Uh, And so one really simple strategy that every student can do is to read their textbook, and they can take notes if they want to, um, read the chapter, and when you're done, close the book, Go get a snack for five minutes and think about something else. And when you come back, sit down and just try and write down everything you can remember from the chapter that you just read. Uh, Start with the most important information, but try and get as much as you can. Once you feel like you've run out of stuff to do, then just go back and flip through the chapter and sort of identify, oh, are there any big ideas that I missed that weren't here? Did I get things right? This is called the read, recite, review method, and it's great. It's so easy to do. It doesn't take, you know, it takes maybe an extra five or ten minutes after you've read your chapter. Um, I think that can really help a lot. The other thing I, I, I want to mention that sometimes students forget is that uh, retrieval practice can occur even if you're just thinking about something. And so I've done some research looking at the differences between covert retrieval where you're just thinking about it and overt retrieval where you're actually writing it down. Okay. Uh, what we found, and other researchers have confirmed this, is in general, covert retrieval is just as effective as retrieval where you actually write it down or say it aloud. The trick is sometimes... When you're retrieving it mentally, you go, oh, yeah, I think I got that, but you don't really commit to it. And so as long as you actually are retrieving it, you, you should be getting similar benefits to actually writing it down or saying it out loud. 
And this is fabulous because it means when you are taking a shower in the morning, you can be sort of running through, okay, what were the big ideas from class yesterday? When you're folding your laundry, you can sort of be thinking back to, oh, here's some of the big ideas from class today. And, oh, that's really interesting that what we talked about today connected to last week in some way. And just building in those moments for covert retrieval practice during slow times in the day, I think is great. It doesn't take any more time. It's keeping you engaged with the material, uh, which is really effective. That's that's really great. That's really great advice. I was just curious. I've heard sort of mixed things on people saying whether you should try and speak things out loud versus saying it in your head. It sounds like it doesn't make too much difference. It doesn't take too much difference. If, If you have the option of writing it down or saying it out loud, I think that that can help because it forces you to really make sure you're actually doing it. (laughs) I think think it's easy to cheat to say, oh, yeah, I I get that. I understand that. But when you actually have to explain it to somebody, that's even more effective. Uh, If you can find a a patient roommate or sibling to actually explain something to, that's fabulous. If you don't have that, you can talk to your dog or your cat or your pet rock or just your (laughs) wall, your imaginary friends. Uh, And I think in all those situations, it's, it's good to practice doing that. Explain it to the wall. Fantastic. Um, (laughs) I love that. That's great. Awesome. So I I wanted to talk a little bit about um, that sort of other pillar of being a good student. So how you organize your time and how you, you schedule your life. Are there any sort of big issues you see students having with their time management, particularly often and, you know, any, any recommendations for what they should do, do, do better or differently? Sure. Yeah. Certainly, I think there's a lot of room for improvement with most most college students, and definitely most professors too. Yeah. I think have some room for improvement with their yeah, sure. with their time management. So I think the the first thing to keep in mind is that time management is a misnomer, and that we're all limited to 24 hours a day. Like we can't do something to somehow get more time. So what we're really talking about is like how are you managing your actions and the things that you're doing. And so it's really task management rather than time management. Uh, but I think there's a few things that in general are really helpful for pretty much anybody in any stage of life and sort of keeping track of all the stuff that you have to do. And the most important thing is writing things down. This basically means that you have to come up with a system for yourself for keeping track of what you need to do and your where you need to be and the things that you would like to do. And it turns out our brains are really good at reminding us about things and uh, thinking really broadly. But they're really bad at reminding us when we can actually do something about it. Uh, and so the, the kind of crude example, which is always hilarious, is uh, when you remember that you're out of toilet paper. Right. It's usually when you really need that toilet paper. If our brains were better, we would be reminded of that when we were at the grocery store walking down the, the aisle with the, with the paper products. Right. Uh, and our brains don't do that. One thing that is really helpful is just you want to get it on paper so it sort of gives you permission to stop worrying about it if you know you've got a trusted system where everything is. And so a lot of what I'm talking about now is uh, totally cribbed from a, a book called Getting Things Done by David Allen. And it came out in early 2001. I think he revised it a few uh-huh. years ago that's updated a little bit in terms of technology and tools. Um I love this book. Uh, it's pretty it's pretty nerdy in some ways, and it's there's a lot to it. So I don't necessarily recommend that all of my students do it. But again, if this is the sort of thing that uh, one of your listeners is interested in, it's certainly worth checking out. Yeah, yeah. I think a few things that we can kind of extract from from that basic framework is is you need to write things down. And so I think the first starting point for students is make sure you are actually using a calendar. 
And what I mean by that is you should, at the start of the semester, put in, here's when all of my class meetings are. Here is when my club commitments are. Here's when I need to go to work. Here's uh, any time you actually have to be in a physical place at a certain time, you put that on the calendar. I think you can go one step further and also put major deadlines on your calendar. Uh, and so saying, oh, yeah, I've got a final on this day. This project is due here. And this takes a bit of time, right? So I think at the beginning of the semester, it's really worthwhile to sit down and look through the syllabus for each of your classes or anytime you get an update on a deadline, make sure you're putting it on that calendar. And so that at any point in time, you can look and see, oh, here's all my commitments right now. Um, and that's going to help a lot. Uh, you could do it. Uh, everyone's, everyone's got a smartphone these days. So you could do it on there. You can use Google Calendar. You could also use a paper planner. I think is fine too. I think the other big piece of it is having a to-do list. It's really simplest. This is just a list of all the stuff you need to do. I think you should, I think most students should put everything they need to put, they need to do on that list. And that includes doing your homework for math class, but also includes doing your laundry and going to run an errand in town and buying more shampoo. Because all that stuff is going to weigh on you if you're trying to remember to do it at the right time. And if you've got it on a list, that can be great. The problem is if you put everything on one big list, that gets a little overwhelming and that can be a little terrifying. Uh, and so a system I think is really helpful is you've got your calendar, you've got your big to-do list, and then you take five minutes in the morning to, or sometimes the night before and you basically say, okay, what has to happen today? And you look at your calendar and you can see, okay, well, I've got to go to, to this class at 1030 and I've got a meeting at lunch and I've got practice and I've got another class. You've got those blocks there, and then you can look over your to-do list and pick out the things that absolutely have to happen that day. And so that's homework that's due tomorrow or turning in some administrative form or something like that. And then I like to put that on an index card, uh, and I think an index card is great for that because it limits you to how much stuff you can put on there. That way you can sort of really focus on those three to five items that you really have to get done that day. Uh, and so that's a little routine you can do in the morning. And then all of this is just looking at your calendar, looking at your to-do list, uh, and just figuring out, okay, is anything falling through the cracks right now? No? Okay. I can focus on these few things. Uh, and another important piece of that is as you're going about your day and new stuff crops up again, you have a homework assignment, your friend wants to go see a movie this weekend, uh, you should add that to your calendar or to-do list as you're going about your day. If you wanted, you could flip flip the to-do list over and use the back of it to jot down those thoughts as they come into your mind and then maybe structure it. Absolutely. Yep. Yeah, that's a great idea. And so I would I would call that your sort of digital yeah. inbox on the other side and and, you know, add all that new stuff. And then when you're sitting down to sort of plan the day, you can decide, okay, do I need to put this onto my to-do list? Does this go on my calendar? Do I not really have to deal with this anymore? Can I do it right now? That's another another uh, good thing. And I think the, the other piece of that that's really helpful is in addition to kind of that sort of daily plan once a week, trying to just look at the next week or two. Uh, and I think this is where a lot of students come, get into trouble is because if they're not thinking about, oh, I've got this really big paper due, and I've got an exam in my other class the day before. That's where a lot of students get into trouble. And when I see students struggling in the classes, they say, well, I didn't do well on this test because I had this other paper. And I want to be sympathetic to them. But part of me also thinks, yeah, but you, you knew this was coming, right? You, you need to. And so that's, I think, a big part in college is learning how to plan for that ahead of time. Uh, and so I think uh, when I was in college, I would do this on Sunday mornings. I'd basically sit down and say, okay, what has to happen over the next two to three weeks? And I'd look ahead at the calendar and try and identify those big projects so I can start working on those uh, ahead of time. 
And the big secret for big projects, like writing that paper, or doing a semester-long project, is breaking it down into really small steps. And so the term that I like is a next action. And so what is the next physical action that I need to do to make progress on this? And that's what you want to put on your to-do list rather than work on your paper. Uh, because if you see work on your paper, you're going to sit down and think, well, I'm not really sure what I need to do. And you kind of fumble around. Whereas if the next action is uh, write two paragraphs where you brainstorm ideas for your thesis, that's something really concrete that you can do really quickly when you're rushed and not thinking about it. Yeah. So I guess on those sort of Sunday morning, whatever, whenever it is planning sessions, that might be something you're thinking about. What are the, how do I, how do I break this big goal mm-hmm. down into these smaller manageable chunks that I can knock off in half an hour or however much time I've got? Yeah. And I think that's, that's so important because I think we, well, it is advantageous, I think, to have big blocks of time to work on a big project. You know, if you can devote an afternoon to working on a paper, that's fabulous. But realistically, you're not going to get that too often. So if it's the sort of situation where if you've got 10 extra minutes, you can get part of that done. That's, you know, I think that those small kind of chipping away is is a really uh, important, important thing. Awesome. One barrier I know a lot of students struggle with to, to yeah. getting things done, the title of title of that book you mentioned, um, is, yeah. is, is for whatever reason they're procrastinating, they're putting it off. Uh, yeah. Any solutions yeah. to dealing with that? Uh, if I had a solution to that, uh, I would be <laughs> uh, a much wealthier man. <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, there's, a, there's a few things. I think the next action things can really help. Uh, and so one thing I, I know is if I've seen something on my to-do list for a week or two and I haven't done it yet, it's probably too big of a task to get started on. And so I'll make it, try and I'll delete it and make it even smaller. I'll cross it off and make it even smaller. And so sometimes it's literally something like Google search the phone number for the mechanic in town. Right. It's so easy. Like, like it's so easy to do that. And then once you do that, you're like, well, I might as well just call them real quick. Uh, or if it's just search for this one author on Google Scholar to look for a paper for a source. And once you do that, you go, oh, well, here's this other one. I'll just grab that one, too. And then all of a sudden, 20 minutes have gone by and you've collected all the resources you need for writing your paper. Um, so I think breaking the small actions is great. Uh, the other thing I think is really helpful is the term I've heard of this is called the procrastination dash. And you just set either a timer for five or 10 minutes, or you set yourself a really dumb goal. Like, I'm going to write three sentences on my paper. That's all you have to do. And, and, or I'm going to work for five minutes on writing this paper, or I'm going to work for 10 minutes on researching this topic. And the idea is you have to sit down. You have to sit there for 10 minutes uh, and, and do it. And the idea is you want to make it small enough and easy enough that there's no way you can't finish it. Like you, want, you want to set yourself up for success there. And so if you do that, what you'll often find is that after you've done that 10 minutes, you're kind of in the flow and then you're ready to do more work. Uh, and so secretly it's a trick to kind of get getting started on things. And I think that's the hardest part with a lot of these things. The other advice I've heard as it pertains to writing particularly, so I think this will help really with writing papers, but it can also help with studying, uh, is making sure that uh, the expression I heard is uh, parking on a downhill slope. And the idea is you want to finish your session by sort of identifying exactly what you're going to do the next time you're going to work on this. And that makes it really easy to get started if you know exactly what you need to do. 
if you finish the session by you know writing the method section, you might say, okay, well the next thing you need to do is uh, write my rewrite the hypotheses for my paper. That way, when you sit down, you know exactly. All right, this is what I need to do. I need to rewrite these hypotheses, and you've got a really clear way to move forward. And procrastination's hard. <laughs> it's always uh, it's always going to be easier to do something tomorrow than to to do it right away. Oh, sure, it sounds like some pretty actionable advice to to at least give yeah. a, give a good attempt at uh, as you're sort of saying, breaking it down and and just getting something, getting some momentum mm-hmm. started. Um, yeah, oh, fantastic. Well, I mean, I've thoroughly enjoyed that conversation. Was there anything else you wanted to uh, you wanted to mention? I, I think that I just I, I looked at my notes here real quick, yeah. and the the last thing I wanted to to mention was uh, the importance of really focusing on your work when you're working. And I think this is something that's really difficult for students, uh, millennials, uh, and and students today, uh, which is we're so used to being constantly engaged with social media and the web and our smartphones and our friends. It's so important to develop the skill of being able to sit down and really focus on something for an extended period of time without being distracted. Yeah. It is incredibly hard, um, but it is a learnable skill to be able to do that. And I think that will make your work incredible, a lot more efficient. And so one thing I see is I'll talk to students and say, well, I studied for eight hours for this test. I don't know why I didn't do well. And I say, well, tell me what it's like when you stay in. And they say, well, I like to stay in the lounge of my dorm. And so the, I, I like being able to watch the baseball game. <laughs> and then I'll talk to people and then I'll read for a paragraph or two. And then I'll watch something on YouTube. And it's like, well, no wonder you're not getting anything done. Not, you're not actually studying. You're only studying for a very small period of time. Yeah. Uh, and there's a wealth of cognitive psychology research that suggests that every time you have to switch your attention from one thing to the next, there's a cost in doing that, like a, a, an energy and a time cost in doing that. And so in terms of increasing the efficiency with which you're staying, making sure that you turn your phone off, that you turn off your internet connection, you sit down with just your book in your notebook in front of you to study uh, and you're in a quiet location where your friends don't know where you are. Uh, it's hard to do that, but man, it's going to pay di- real dividends in terms of how effective you are. And I think it's great because uh, from my perspective, uh, when I can do that, it's like, okay, let me really focus on doing this and I'm going to be done early. And now I can go and really just hang out and enjoy, you know, doing something fun later instead of doing this sort of half working, half playing thing all the time. Yeah, yeah. I guess that might that might be as simple as finding a new place to work. Might be going finding a library you've never been before where you don't know anyone. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So uh, if you're a history major, go to the science library, right, and (laughs) uh, tuck yourself away in the corner. (laughs) Uh, That's that. I think that's really uh, super important. Super important. As is, I think, as is everything we've we've talked about. Been Um, uh, so you know. Thank you for being so generous with your your thoughts. I think it's been really really helpful. I always, I always close with a question I call the, the time machine question. So yeah. if you were able to go back in time and bump into your 16-year-old self in the schoolyard or whatever, what advice would you whisper in, uh, in his ear? Yeah, so you, you warned me that this is the question you're going to ask. And, I, and I, thought, I thought a bit about it. And I thought a bit, too, about whether a 16-year-old self would listen to uh, 33-year-old Adam. <laughs> uh, and I'm not sure that he would. I think the, the biggest thing was, was just... I feel like at, at that age, there's a lot of stress to figure out and pressure to figure out what you're going to do for the rest of your life and to, to figure out a plan and you're going to go to college and do this and this and this. And it can be really stressful to not know what's coming next and to reassure myself that, you know what, 
you're going to end up where you're meant to be. It's going to be fine. And sort of working hard at things and practicing things. Uh, I think uh, this is a quote from Steve Martin that I love, which is, I'm not going to give you the direct, direct quote because I'll butcher it, but the, the sentiment sure. was, uh, if you practice something a little bit every day, in 30 years, you're going to be really good at that thing. Um, and so whether that thing is playing an instrument or writing or studying or doing some other thing that you're passionate and excited about, just putting a little time in every day. And over the years, it'll continue to improve a lot at that uh, and, and improve in ways that you'll be surprised at how much better you can get at it. Uh, and so... Uh, to summarize into like the one piece of advice for 16-year-old Adam, it's like, everything's going to be okay. Uh, just keep chugging away uh, and, and putting your best effort in and things will work out just fine in the end. I think that sounds fantastic. Adam, thank you ever so much. It's been a, been a brilliant conversation. If anyone wanted to find out a bit more about you, what you do, maybe Furman University even, uh, is there anywhere you'd, you'd point them to? Uh, sure. So my website is adamlputnam.com. And so that's uh, where I have uh, a lot of my research is posted there and uh, both the academic papers and some more general summaries. That's probably the best way uh, to, to get in touch with me uh, is just email me through the website there. Um, I don't have a huge social media practice because uh, I try to stay focused on my work uh, a lot of times. But uh, if, if people have questions, I'm happy to, to field, field questions and answers and things like that. Fantastic. Well, look, thanks ever so much. That's, um, that's, that's brilliant. And we'll, we'll, I'll put those links in the show notes so sure. people can find them if, if they want to. Yeah. Adam, thanks ever so much. Yeah, thanks, William. I appreciate it. And thanks again, Adam. What a fantastic set of advice. Um, There's so much in that. I thought it was worth just taking a couple of seconds just to quickly summarise some of my big takeaways from the conversation. Number one, if you're not using retrieval practice and spaced learning in your studies, you're making life harder for yourself. Again, you can go back and listen to episode three or seven for more details on these techniques. Number two, mnemonics like the pegword method or the method of loci can be effective for memorising things, particularly concrete objects. And if you're motivated and find these kinds of memory methods fun, you could even learn a system like the major system, which makes numbers easy to remember. Either way, just remember that mnemonics aren't going to be a silver bullet to solve all your problems. See them as playing a supporting role in an overall study system that's based on retrieval practice and spacing. Number three, plan your time in advance. You might have a digital calendar, you might have a paper diary, it's up to you. Just make sure you block off everything that's going to take up time in your life, from classes and seminars to swim practice and orchestra, and look ahead so you can identify those big test or assignment deadlines early. Number four, break those big hairy tasks down into smaller, friendly jobs that you feel you can easily accomplish. And finally, number five, when you're working, give yourself the brain space to do it efficiently. That means no TV, no friends chatting, no phone buzzing. It may sound a bit anti-fun, but actually you get your work done faster and then you'll be able to enjoy much more quality, guilt-free leisure and fun time as a result. And hey, you might even start to find your work more satisfying as you get better at it. So there we have it. If you do want to look up Adam and his research, or you want more details on where you can get your hands on those books about mnemonics or productivity that he recommended, check out the show notes in your podcast app or on our website at www.examstudyexpert.com forward slash Adam. I've also linked up a number of our recent blog articles about some of the common mnemonics and how to use them to make life a little easier for you if you're wanting to try out any of the techniques that Adam suggested. 
Again, you can head to examstudyexpert.com forward slash Adam and all the articles you'll want are linked up from there. Which just leaves for me to thank you for taking the time to tune into this episode. I hope you've enjoyed it as much as I did and I look forward to having your company on another episode again soon. If you've got exams coming up, you can now get all of William's favourite tips and tricks to save you time and get you higher grades all in one handy cheat sheet. Grab your copy at examstudyexpert.com slash free tips. Thanks again for listening and see you soon.